Welcome to FaithBridge Sermons Podcast. This sermon features founding pastor Ken Werline and was recorded on Sunday, September 12th as we kicked off our new series on the Ten Commandments called How to Be Human. Thanks for tuning in. If you're in the area, we would love to have you join us next Sunday at 9 or 11 a.m. And if you're a part of FaithBridge Online, we invite you to join us at faithbridge.org slash live. Here's Ken. Well, good morning, everybody. So glad that you're here. If you're here in the live service, if you're here in the communion service, if you're here online, however it is that you're here, we're really glad that you're here on this kickoff Sunday after three great weeks of on-ramp Sundays with a lot of fun and parties and food and, and all of that. So as we start today, I want to invite you to imagine something with me. I want you to imagine a world in which you never had to lock your door at night. You never had to turn on the alarm. You never had to get ID or fraud protection because there were no prisons. There were no courtrooms because there weren't even contracts, because there weren't needed. Everybody's word was their bond. Imagine a world where everybody was generous with their finances. Imagine a world where everybody loved their neighbors as themselves, and where everybody loved God and honored him, even taking one out of seven days off just to worship him and and get recalibrated and bring things down to maybe a two or a three rather than the perpetual idling that goes on around 9.7 in our lives, just right on the edge of blowing a gasket. Can you imagine? Well, that's exactly what God had in mind for us. And why 35 years ago, he gave us some timeless, truthful precepts, which if we would heed them, would give us the world that I just described. They're called the Ten Commandments. In uh, 23 and a half years, we've never done a series on the Ten Commandments. So I think it's high time. Turn in your Bible to Exodus chapter 20. If you need a Bible, why don't you wave at an usher and they'll be bringing some by. And uh, you're going to be turning to Exodus 20. We'll also turn over to uh, the New Testament book of Matthew 5. So you can keep a finger over in Matthew 5 as well. We're calling this series How to Be Human. Because if ever there was a blueprint given to us from our divine architect, on how to be human, how to make society work. It's right here. And if ever we needed some simple clues on how to treat, care for one another properly, and how to honor and worship God, that time would be now. That's what we need. You find them, the Ten Commandments, not only in the Old Testament, 
but Jesus is actually going to come along and he's going to sort of repackage them and republish them in his teachings as well. The first four deal with our vertical relationship with God. And the latter six deal with our horizontal relationships with each other. Now, when I was in Colorado this past summer, as typically I do, sort of mapping out, here's where we're going to go this year, I, I, I had it all slotted in and said, there. But the next morning when I was praying, I felt like the Lord said, no, that's not it. I don't want you to take them sequentially. They all stand on their own, so you can drop in anywhere and you can move from here to there. And he began to give me a little bit of a different order. And so I played with that and worked some things around. And so today... We are going to plunge right in. We're going to number seven. All right, let me read it to you. You shall not commit adultery. There it is. Some of you are like, whoa, did we pick a day to come to church? Let's look at what Jesus said, because he is going to talk about this too. In Matthew 5, 27, he says, you've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anybody who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, then you need to gouge it out and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown in hell. And if your right hand is causing you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Now, it's a little bit awkward, I'll admit, to just start a whole new fall series talking about sexuality. So I'll just bring a little levity. I like the story, I've told it before, of the preacher who felt a little awkward when a neighboring church's women's group called and said, would you come and speak to us about the topic of sex? So he said that he would do that. And that morning after getting dressed, he was fixing to leave and get in his car and, and his wife said, what, by the way, are you talking about to that women's group over the neighboring church? And he just felt so awkward about saying it was gonna be sex. He said, sailing, and he walked out the door. Well, a day or two later, two of the ladies from that church saw his wife at the grocery store, came running up to her and said, oh, let me tell you, your husband did the most wonderful talk. It was interesting. It was captivating. It was fascinating. You're so lucky to be married to such a wonderful man. He understands these things. He has such sensitivity and insight to these things. And a wife said, that is the weirdest thing. He's only ever done it twice. The first time he fell off, and the second time he vomited. <laughs> All right, if you're a note taker, I'm going to break what we talk about into three things today. All right, the first one is this. What's the problem? The second one, why does it matter? And the third one, what should we do about it? All right, so first, what's the problem? <laughs> you, you like that one, huh, Robert? Uh, all right, so Jesus was addressing something that's been a big misunderstanding for 3,500 years since this commandment was given. Because, well, I can illustrate from my own life. I, I've been doing ministry now for, I was counting, 35 years. Since I was 20 years old uh, working in a church one summer as a youth intern 
with youth. And I was thinking one of, one of the things that youth were always asking when I was in those years I was doing uh, youth ministry was uh, how far is too far? That's what they always wanted to know. Uh, because they're thinking, well, if, if holding hands is nice, then eh, I don't know, you, kissing might be a little bit better. And, and if kissing's okay, how about some hugging and some fondling and some things like that? And if that's what they're like, okay, I think I got the question. So, because what they were trying to figure out is where's the line? Because if you'll just tell us where the line is, then we will just go right up to the edge of that line. And really, when you think about it, people have been asking that question all the way back into Bible times. They were asking the same question, and that's why Jesus is going to talk with them very frankly, because they were, they were asking him the same question. And they were taking it very literally. They were saying, okay, it says, do not commit adultery. So, adultery is the line. So if she's not married, then it's okay, right? And Jesus is like, no, no, you don't understand the spirit of what's going on here. You're convincing yourself you haven't crossed the line, but I'm fixing to tell you, oh, you've crossed the line. You cross the line in your brain. You cross the line in your mind when you begin bouncing from bed to bed in your fantasies, in your own mental imaginations. And that's why he says in verse 28, I tell you that anybody who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So Jesus is actually going to raise the bar and that made them squirm, and it makes us squirm as well. Now, since Jesus was addressing the culture of 2,000 years ago, which was a patriarchal uh, society, it's very easy for us to think, okay, this is mostly a male talk. This is a preacher talking to his men, right? But ladies, that wouldn't be right. And at Faithbridge, we would never patronize you ladies by diminishing your ability to be just as sinful as men. Because you ladies struggle with lust no less than men. I think of Potiphar's wife. Do you remember going back to the very beginning in Genesis? You go back to Genesis and, and Potiphar's uh, wife, uh, well, and Potiphar, uh, they, they had a new slave. His name was Joseph. And what did she, she do? She, she, somewhere along the way, she started doing some comparing in her mind between Joseph and between her husband Potiphar. And so we don't know it, but you can kind of figure out what was going on in her mind. She's calculating, okay, he's young and he's handsome and he's strong and he's friendly and he's good looking and he's virile. And <clears throat> Potiphar, my husband, you'll fart. You know, and, and so that's what she's thinking. And so she throws herself at him and says, come, be with me. Yeah, so women struggle with this as much as men. I appreciate the young Christian lady who wrote, as long as I've been in church, 
I've known that sexual sin was a guy's struggle, but somehow I just thought it was apparently not so common for women. So what was I to do when my mom's Victoria's Secret catalog arrived and I secretly ogled over the pictures wishing that I could look like those women? Or where I replayed, when I replayed intimate scenes, sexual scenes from Titanic in my head? Or when I discovered certain parts of my body felt great when touched in a certain way? She writes, the truth is lust is a temptation common to all humanity, not just men. We women might not struggle in all the same ways as our brothers do, but every one of us knows the pull of lustful temptations. For most women, the lust battle is birthed in the emotions. Give us a gushy, romantic comedy or a sensual story like The Notebook, and it can do us in. So both genders are just as susceptible to lust. So that's the problem. That's what the problem is. So, but, but why does it matter? Really, Pastor Ken, is it that big a deal? If it's kind of the, 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 the commonality between humanity that we all wrestle with, this, then why are we making a big deal about it? Why was Jesus so concerned about it? I want to talk about it, but first let me clear up one misconception. And that misconception is something that often sneaks in right about here when we're having a conversation like that. And that is that, that Christians are anti-sex. Uh, and Christians think sex is a bad thing and an evil thing. And, that, and, and that's never what Jesus is going to say. Um, he's going to say quite the contrary. No, 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 when it's used appropriately, as it was originally intended to be used... It's a wonderful thing. Christians understand that sex is something that God created. And so it cannot be a bad thing because he's the one who created it. And you see evidence of that in the, in the Old Testament book of Song of Solomon. Song of Solomon is a fascinating story. A love song celebrated between a, a husband and a wife. And it's every bit PG. In chapter 7 it says the husband's looking at his wife who's coming for sexual intimacy. And he's watching her walking to him, and he says, your breasts are like clusters of fruit, and I'm taking hold of that fruit. I'm just reading the Bible. <laughs> and then in chapter 5, she describes him saying, his hair is wavy and black and as raven. His lips are like lilies dripping with myrrh. His body is like a polished ivory tusk. And this is my lover, my friend. Hebrew scholars say English translations kind of cleaned that ivory tusk thing up a little bit. Because what it's talking about is his polished, erect private parts. That's what it's talking about. I tell you, the Bible is a very interesting book. You people should try it more. So if God invented sex, it most definitely cannot be that God is anti-sex. No. He's all for it being practiced in the way that he created it to be practiced within the confines of a married male-female marriage. Because sex in marriage is good. It's unifying it's fun, it's healing, it's bonding. That's all good. 
Sort of like a fire is good, as long as it's kept in the fireplace. But if the fire springs out of the fireplace and starts burning down the house, not so good anymore. So what would fires outside of the fireplace be? Well, it starts with fantasizing in the mind and then emotional affairs and physical affairs and casual sex and friends with benefits and porn before marriage and during marriage and after marriage and homosexuality and fornication and anything that's outside the context of a loyal, loving, committed, monogamous marriage that's what's leading to the forest fires our culture is dealing with sexually so back to the question so but okay so got it but why is it a problem for jesus i'll tell you three reasons first because it's progressive it's progressive and it's addictive um a pastor friend called me and he says i need some wisdom and he said all right he said, well, it's about one of my uh, young staff. And um, he's newly wed. I was like, okay. I said, but he's, he's having affairs. I'm like, oh my. Uh, and also quickly. He said, sort of. And I said, do you know who she is? And he says, well, it's not quite that simple. I said, okay. He said, it has to do with... Um, internet affairs i mean so i'm saying like so like writing and and he's like no not exactly that he said so let's just suffice it to say that before the pandemic taught us all how to use zoom the sex industry had already figured out two directional uh technology just fine I'm like oh so that's how she said yeah and this is a recurrent, habitual problem. I said, well, it can't have just started. No, it didn't just start. He said he's, he's, he's been honest enough to say no. He goes back to when he was younger and before he was even married. And, and, and he lasted about, I don't know how long after he got married, not very long. And then he just, he keeps doing it. And one night she, the wife, hears some commotion and walks in and finds him in this most compromising position it's like wow and so I, I i share that story simply to illustrate isn't that it, it didn't start there it started with something i'm sure far milder a glance here a glance there a picture here a picture there but one thing and another and he just got drawn in like the sirens in Greek mythology would draw the sailors in. So it's progressive. Um, it's progressive, particularly when it comes to the moment of maybe. That's the moment we have to talk about right here. Because Walter Wengren writes about this moment of maybe. What is it? It's that split second when the temptation thought crosses our mind about, well, what would it be like 
to be with this person who is not my spouse. Because in that moment of maybe, Wangren writes, there's really only two choices. You can slam the door closed or you can keep the door cracked. And if you keep the door cracked, it's only one short step from maybe to yes. See, lust is progressive. It's addictive. It's never enough. It's like drinking salt water out of the ocean. You do that, it just makes you thirstier. One more picture, one more sight, one more intimate talk with somebody you don't need to be having it with. One more touch, one more affair. It's progressive. It's addictive. And I'll tell you a second thing. It's, it's dehumanizing. It's dehumanizing. Jesus isn't saying that sexual desire is wrong. No, no, that's normal to have sexual desires. He doesn't say that because the Bible doesn't say that. We've already agreed that the Bible's attitude towards sex is quite exuberant and celebratory so long as it's in the right context, if it's in the right fireplace. So it's not wrong to say, wow, she's really pretty. Or wow, he's really good looking. Wow, she's so kind. He's so friendly and polite. That's not wrong. That's not dehumanizing. But what is, is about what happens five to ten seconds later. When after thinking that thought, one begins to think. And maybe it would be really interesting if we could be closer. This is the moment of maybe that becomes the danger point. And see, what begins to happen is this is the dehumanizing part. Because at this, it's at this part, now we're not ever focused on the total person. Seldom do we even know the total person. We just know one facet of the person. That she's very beautiful or shapely or that he's very strong and popular. You know, whatever. We, we know this one facet and that's the facet that our brains fixate on. It's sort of like uh, King David. After fixating, then what begins to want to happen? I want to possess that. You remember how when he goes up to the top of the palace and he's just surveying his land one day in Jerusalem and he looks down and there's Bathsheba. And this was just a calamity of two people in the wrong place at the wrong time. He shouldn't have been on top of the palace. He should have been off at war. She should have been behind a shower curtain. And so you have two things that are going on that's just pretty bad timing. He sees her. And then there's this moment of maybe. And when you're the king, your maybe can become a command to anybody. And that's exactly what happens. Even though you picture his, his assistant saying, oh, king, she's married. She's married. Remember, his name's Uriah. He's one of your great mighty men. Oh, king, check out that beautiful sunset. That sunset over there. Check out that one, king. Change your mind. Move on. Get past the maybe. He wasn't getting past the maybe. And he sends orders and, well, 
it only gets worse from there. Martin Luther said 15, or 500 years ago, you can't stop uh, noticing a beautiful bird when it flies overhead. But let the bird fly on. Because there's a difference between noticing the beautiful bird flying overhead and allowing the bird to build a nest on your head. Last is when you feel that initial thought starting to nest in your mind and roll around in the tongue of your heart. And that's where it begins to get one dimensional. Now I'm not thinking about all of her qualities. Now you're not thinking about all of his qualities. You're just thinking about this one that you can see or observe, this one-dimensional thing. And that becomes very dehumanizing because we are total people created to be loved totally, not one-dimensionally. That would be like going up to an, an antique book and saying, well, I don't really want the whole antique book rip I just want this one page and walking out with that that's what lust does and why it's dehumanizing because it's ripping out one aspect and one aspect alone of another person one more thing why it matters because it's destructive it's destructive. It destroys other people. I see it happen all the time, and I'm sure that you do too. It destroys marriages. It destroys uh, trust with children. Uh, and at even more damaging levels, it's destructive in ways that break the law and are criminal with molestation, incest, rape, trafficking, and the like. But it's also destructive to the lust-er. And I think this isn't talked about enough. Uh, because it's drawing the luster in to this self-destruction. Jesus says it'd be better for you to pluck your eye out, chop your hand off, than to go to hell. People say, so do you go to hell for lusting? Well, let's remember, what saves us? Our purity of thought? No. As we'll say in a few moments. What saves us is our trust in Jesus. Our being saved by grace through faith in Jesus. That's what saves us. But you don't have to go literally one day to hell to be in hell. I read a book this past week by Noah Church. I would not recommend it as a Christian book because it's not Christian literature, but it is interesting literature, particularly if you're a parent and you would like to know more about how does pornography work and what ruts does it form in the brain. He talks of how from age nine on, he became a porn addict and, and how it just escalated and escalated and escalated. And he talks openly about what is now called um, the erectile dysfunction that is porn-induced. Because he said, I knew I had a problem when then I was with somebody and things weren't working the way that they were supposed to work. You talk about being in hell. He writes about it very openly. 
And I found it informing just to, to, to realize, wow, so you don't have to go to hell to be in hell. Uh, and uh, perhaps this is what Paul was talking about in 1 Corinthians 6 when he says, who are you kidding? What you thought you were in charge of has become your master. Now you're enslaved to it and it's destroying you. So it's destructive. So we talked about what the problem is. We talked about why it's a problem. So now let's talk about what can we do about it? How can we have healing? How can we have victory? All right, three ways. The first one is this, take radical steps. We have to take radical steps. What did Jesus say? Again, pluck their eye out, chop the hand off. He's not being literal. He's using prophetic hyperbole at this point. He's getting the attention and likening it today. I am sure he would say you must treat it like cancer. How do you treat cancer? We cut it out. Or we blast it with chemo or radiation. He's saying you have to take radical steps. You can't just let this linger along in your body. No, it'll grow and it'll pick up and it'll gain momentum and spread. And you got to take radical steps. What's a radical step? Well, I think of any number of radical steps people have taken over the years. People who've told me. I've gotten to where I just have to, I give my technology to my spouse at 9 p.m. Because nothing ever happens good after 9 p.m. with me and technology, they'll say. Another person who said, I had to take a different job. We had to, we, I had to get out of that workplace because she was always, he was always going to, it was always going to be there. I, I had to get a different job. That's a radical step. Some who have said, you know, I can't even go a couple of days without doing this. And they sign up and go to SA, not AA, but sex addict recovery. To begin building 90 days of sobriety, to begin to come into healing. Radical steps. You may need to take a radical, a radical step for some of you might be something simple as just calling up to the church this week and saying, hey, I, I like to make an appointment with Pastor Dan or with Janice just to talk and to get things opened up. And from there, we could get you referred to a, a counselor that could help you take radical steps. I think of Ben Stewart who tells the story of a radical step he took when he was a young guy at seminary. Back in the day when we didn't have Wi-Fi, but when you still plugged your computer into the wall. Do you remember that story? He talks about how one night he, he, he Googled uh, Passion Ministries, Louis Giglio, and the ministry that he would eventually be a, become a part of. And he talks about how when he put in passion, something else popped up on the screen. And that was no ministry. And, and he looked at that and thought, oh, mine, close that window down. But as soon as he closed it down, he said, well, I'm actually kind of interested in that passion. And, and, but he said, no, no, I can't do that. That's, that's not who I am in, in Christ. And, and so he said, I'm just, I'm turning it off. So he turns the computer off and, uh, and says, I just need to go to bed. And so he gets right, goes to bed. But even while he's lying in bed, he's still thinking, but I am curious 
about what was that? And, and he said, and, and I just realized if I lie here, I'm not going to win this battle. So he went up to his desk and he got a pair of scissors and he cut the cable that kept the computer tied to the wall. And he said, now that was radical, but you know what? It worked. It freed me in that moment. And I slept like a baby the rest of the night. Take radical sin. What, what, what did Joseph do when Potiphar's wife came on to him? You remember? He slithers out of that, that, that garment and he's like, whoop, and I, I got to go. And she's holding his shirt or whatever, tunic, and, and he runs off. Think that looked awkward? Yep. But his character, his integrity was held intact. And I think that's, that's, that's encouraging. And that's the goal. That's what we're going for. And let me give you a little history. When you're talking about, yeah, but that'll feel awkward. I'll feel like a lump on a log and a little bit different. I want you to consider a little bit of history that I didn't realize until I was studying for this. But it's this. And that is, if you think about it, we're only here today because of what happened in the first 300 years of Christianity. What happened in the first 300 years of Christianity? You have a little group of people who followed after Jesus. And after Jesus goes back to heaven, he says, now, I want you to take this message and I want you to share it with other people. And they went out and they began to do what he had said to do. And they're making converts and people are saying, I want to come. I want to come and be a part of it. And they're joining and they're becoming followers of of Jesus Christ to the point that 300 years later, 30 million Christians. Now you read church history and you begin to realize, wait, there was something distinctly different about the Christian than the pagan person. Well, there's many things, but two things in particular that made the Christian stand out. You have to understand that pagan people back in ancient Rome, what they prioritized was living promiscuic, uh, with promiscuity sexually. They gave their bodies to anyone, to everybody. But they were very selective and stingy with their money. Christians come and they flip that around. And Christians were taking the world by storm because when it came to money, they're like, Jesus, our Lord said, why would we store it up here on earth? We get heaven, uh, uh, treasures in heaven if we give it away. So let's, let's give it away. So they become very promiscuous with their finances and they give things away to people. No strings attached. Why? Because God loves you. And I just want to show God's love in a practical sort of way. And then they became very selective with their sexuality. Their marriage bed was kept only for the marriage. And the onlooking world looked at that and said, that is weird. But it's working. And I'm interested because your life and your family, it seems better than ours. And you have this quality of joy and uniqueness. And I think I would like to hear more about this Jesus. And I couldn't help but think to myself, perhaps one of the reasons if Christianity in America has plateaued, and I think it has, unfortunately, if Christians would begin to live again the way Christ called us to live, perhaps then a new movement, a new revival would come to our land. 
I'm afraid, though, that what has happened is that so many people who are professing to be Christians have just punted on all of these things, which could call into question the authenticity of their commitment to Christ. But I won't go down that pathway other than to say he calls us to live distinctly different, differently. And if we have named the name of Christ and said, I'm going to give my allegiance to him, then it does follow that some things will change in the way that we're handing our sexuality. And the onlooking world would be able to see a difference that I'm not sure they can see right now. So we have to take radical steps. Second thing, flee temptation. I already mentioned how Joseph slithers out and he, he, he runs off and, and, and he surely uh, looks awkward. I'll tell you another story of a, of a man who, <laughs> he fled. It's a man who came into my office years ago. I said, well, what's on your mind? And he says, well, I've got a problem. Um, Yesterday, I was in my backyard. My next door neighbor's wife was in her backyard and we got talking and one thing and another, we ended up kissing across the fence. I said, wow. I said, what are you going to do? He said, well, I've been thinking about that. I can't do that anymore. I'm like, nope, I think you're right. He said, I, I think what I, I'm going to have to dig down deep and come up with a major willpower and some self-control. I just let the words linger there a moment before I laughed. <laughs> that is BS, I said. You will not have willpower and you will not have self-control if you keep going back to that, 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 that dynamic because you've already been there. He said, well, what do you propose? I say, I'll tell you what I'll propose. You need to man up. You need to call a realtor. You need to get her to put a sign in your yard and you need to move. He's like, oh my gosh, are you kidding? No, I'm not kidding. Not if you want to preserve your marriage and your kids and your family. I said, so now let me pray for you. And I prayed and out he went. I thought, you ain't going to do it. But he did. I was so proud of him. And to this day, when I see him occasionally, he'll say, best thing you ever told me, man up, be the man, be the husband, be the wife, be the dad that I was called to be. I'm so glad you told me to move. You got to take radical steps. You got to flee. Last thing, when you're fleeing, when you're running, don't run away from God. I think that's unfortunate. What a lot of people think is, is I got to get away from God. Good heavens. I got to get away from the church. These people, I'm not good enough for them or they won't think I'm good enough. No, no, no. You don't understand. The truth of the matter is we're the best place that you could be. Because here at Faithbridge, I'll just tell you frankly, we're a church full of sinners. <laughs> transformed by his love, saved by his grace through our faith 
in his son who died on a cross and conquered our grave to give us his truth and to show us his way. That's who we are. And that's why I would want you to stay, not even on the periphery, move in. Because it's here that you would experience safety and grace and the loving arms of Christ. Tim Keller points out that one of the main ways the devil uh, sabotages people's uh, spiritual life is to make them so doggone guilty about their past, to just keep headlocking them back into their past, dragging them, even if just mentally, back into the guilt of their past. But what you need to understand, friends, is that God takes great delight in taking people with the worst pasts and turning them into showcases of his amazing grace. Just read in Matthew 1. There's this genealogy. And in Matthew 1, you read about all these people, and this person begat this person, and this person begat this person. And finally, what he's trying to do is he's trying to say, and this is how we got to Jesus. But the interesting thing about the begats, that genealogy, is several of the names that are listed. One of those names is Rahab. Do you remember who Rahab is? In the genealogy of Jesus, she was a prostitute. She was a harlot. And then there's another, Tamar. Do you remember what about her? Incest. And then there's Solomon, himself the son of David, by a woman called Bathsheba, which had started out not the way it should have started out. And so right there in the in the very genealogy of Jesus, you see, wow, these people are people that became useful in God's great plan. People whose messed up lives ended up coming under the surrender of God's grace and receiving that pardoning grace. And if you have a speckled past, and I would imagine most of us have some speckles, just look to Mary Magdalene. You remember the woman who, who, who was there at the tomb waiting when Jesus uh, gets resurrected? And Mary Magdalene was a person who had a speckled past. And yet he became one of Je- she became one of Jesus' closest friends. After Jesus changed her heart, clearly she just chose to not look backwards anymore but to look forward, to look ahead. And if the devil tempted her to look back, to look only back enough to see the cross on which Jesus had hung, upon which Jesus had shed his blood for her forgiveness and for her pardon. And that's where you need to look. That's where all of us need to look to him because in him there is grace there is pardon there is new start in him there's transformation but only in him and that's why we gather here at Faithbridge 
yes, for corporate worship, but then like it's gonna start this week, all the small groups. That's why we meet in small groups because it's there that you can more likely meet a, a, a guy or two men or a, a lady or two ladies that, that you could cluster up with and actually have fellowship on a deeper level and be confessional. And there's something very liberating about being confessional and being totally honest with somebody else to bring it out in the open. It just, it just punctures the balloon and helps us come to our senses. That's what Christian, a Christian community does for us. That's why I'm excited about this new semester that starts because I'm convinced he's not done doing the healing work that he wants to do. And so don't leave today feeling condemned. Actually come closer in. Come in so close that you might feel his grace. Because that's what I want for you. That you might experience that grace and that transformation and that redemption even of your sexual past. Why don't we talk to him right now? Lord, I thank you for the graciousness that you show. You spoke plenty of truth, but you also had plenty of grace. And God, we come now asking for that. Perhaps you have a confession that you need to make, even just now praying, talking to him silently. Why don't you just say, Lord, this is my confession. Not that he doesn't already know, but that it's good for you to say to him silently. Would you just talk with him about that and get that off your shoulders right now and put it into his hands of care? And then there's a word that it's called repent. To repent means to turn around, to do a 180. And after confessing, he says, I want you to repent, to turn around. Even as he said to that woman that he protected from being stoned when she was caught in adultery. And she said, do you not condemn me? And he says, no. Neither do I. Now go and sin no more. Why don't you make a prayer of just repentance to him even now? And then Last of all, why don't you ask for the filling of his spirit now to flow within you, to give you grace and strength to step into fellowship, to move towards taking a next step. If you haven't signed up yet these past few weeks, you can go out into the atrium, you can find the people with the signs, and you can say, you know, I'm interested in getting a group. I want to have some friends. I, I got to start doing this thing at a, at a new level. Why don't you do that even now? Why don't you just ask him to come into your heart and into your life? If you've never trusted Christ in the first place, you could do that right now as well. Just say, Jesus, I'm asking you to come in to forgive me of my sins, to cleanse me of all unrighteousness. Why don't you do that silently?
Lord, as we go from here, I pray that you would put your blessing upon each of us, that we'll ponder these things, that we'll walk in the newness of life that comes through you, Christ Jesus, full of your spirit, full of hope, full of grace, full of truth. And we pray these things in your strong name.